Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the latest edition of the 12 Kyle podcast. I'm 12 Kyle. Check this out. On this podcast, what I want to talk about is hip hop in the 90s. Now, if you're old enough to remember hip hop in the 90s, or you were cool enough to come outside, you understand that hip hop in the 90s was so dope. And to be honest, for those of us who saw it, we lived it, we breathed it, and it holds a special place for most of us. But actually, there were some things that happened in the 90s that almost killed hip hop. And some things were big, some things were a little bit small, but we didn't really know it at the time. And maybe we just didn't care or we just didn't know any better. But hip hop almost died in the 90s, particularly in the early 90s. Now, I know in the early 2000s, Nas came out with the song Hip Hop is Dead. But on this podcast, I'm going to tell you about some things that you may or may not remember that actually almost killed hip hop really before it could really get its footing and get started in the 90s. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know, and you've heard me say on several occasions, and it's not really up for debate, but 1988, in my opinion, is the greatest year in hip hop, right? There has not been a better musical year for hip hop than 1988. So we had the phenomenon of 1988 1989 was dope and then we're moving into the 2000s excuse me (laughs) i'm getting ahead of myself then we're moving into the 1990s and i mean we've got some bona fide superstars ll run dmc public enemy queen latifah nwa and still there was some challenges that lay ahead for the 90s and that's what I'm going to talk about on this podcast. Uh, one thing that jumps out to me and I was you know, doing some reading and I came across this and it really resonated with me. But one thing that stood out uh, that actually almost killed hip hop in the 90s was the success of record sales and airplay records by two artists. MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. Now, there's no shade on Hammer, right? Because, listen, I don't know anybody who was listening to hip-hop in the 90s that did not have Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. People fronted on Hammer all that they wanted to, but I don't know anybody that did not have that album. You know, was it paid in full? No, it wasn't paid in full, but it was a dance record that everybody loved. And Hammer put on a show. Again, you can't front on Hammer. A lot of people, you know, accused Hammer of selling out and this and that. But forget all that. Hammer was dope. In 1990, Hammer was the man. He was the shit. I mean, and you can't, if you were around that time, you can't front on Hammer. For real. But nonetheless, the Please Hammer don't hurt them album sold like nine million copies in 1990 and then later on that year the second artist vanilla ice 
Vanilla Ice with Ice Ice Baby sold 11 million copies. So hip hop had never sold records like this. NWA, Run DMC, nobody sold records like this. So what happened was even in the success of them breaking records, because Hammer set a record with nine million sales. And then later on that year, Vanilla Ice came through and crushed it with 11 million sales. But what happened was, was that not only did it open the door to pop radio, but this is what pop radio was actually expecting with hip hop. So they were like, OK, hey, we'll play you. We'll play Vanilla Ice. We'll play Hammer because, hey, you got the Super Freak sample. Come on, we'll play. It. And everybody was on. You can't touch this. Everybody. You couldn't. You can't touch this was on black radio. It was on white radio. It was on top 40 radio. It was on MTV and people loved it. And it was opening doors for hip hop or rap at the time because they really didn't refer to it as hip hop. But at the same time, it kind of put rap in a box because when you cross over and you cross over that big to the mainstream, that's what they're expecting. They're expecting everybody to be the next Vanilla Ice or the next Hammer. And to be honest, that's not reality. And if you follow rap and you follow hip hop, you understand that, you know, what Hammer did and what Vanilla Ice did, there were anomalies. You know, Hammer was more street. And I mean, Hammer had a street record before he blew. So it wasn't like, you know, he set out to dominate the pop charts. He just did, you know, Vanilla Ice. Uh, I, I really can't tell you much about the Vanilla Ice album because I only remember one song on the album. <laughs> I didn't have that album, but I did have Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. And so did your mama. And so did your daddy. So did your uncle and your cousin and everybody else. <laughs> I mean, but that's the truth. So. But the problem with that is their record sales and their success actually turned rap fans and hip hop fans and quote unquote street fans against them. And so they looked at a guy like Hammer, who, like I said, had a street record prior to, you know, this album coming out and selling all these copies. And they looked at him like, okay, you crossed over, you sold out. I mean, Hammer had cartoons, Hammer had Hammer to Hammer pants, he was everywhere. And one of the things that almost helped kill hip hop really before it even got started in the 90s was the fact that Hammer and Vanilla Ice broke these record and air record sales and they got so much airplay because now if you could cross over, this is what they were looking for. And to be honest, most rap artists could not deliver what Hammer and Vanilla Ice were delivering. They just couldn't. And I mean, let's I'm going to keep it a bean. I mean, Vanilla Ice, it was easy for him to get on MTV. He was dancing like Hammer and he had to, <laughs> he had the complexion for the protection. I mean, hey, it is what it is. But yeah, that was one thing that almost killed hip hop in the 90s. Hammer and Vanilla Ice record sales and the airplay that it got. Conversely, another thing that almost killed hip hop in the 90s was the fact that black radio 
didn't really mess with hip hop, particularly in the early 90s. Um, black radio actually was backing away from hip hop. R&B was still strong, but you would be hard pressed to get or to hear um, rap or hip hop or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, in the daytime, uh, getting major airplay on any radio station. More often than not, you would hear hip hop on the weekends or late at night. You know, thus the Chuck D line. I get on the mix late in the night because that's when rap really got played, you know. Um, And of course, you know, the college radio stations had, you know, their own scenarios when they would play hip hop. You know, shout out to great shows like, you know, Stretch and Bobito. Um, But that was a regional thing. And again, to try to get, (laughs) you know, um, hip hop played at, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, that wasn't happening. In fact, I remember, (laughs) I remember being in like, I must've been in like, I don't know, eighth or ninth grade. So that was coming right into the nineties, I think late eighties. This is like 89, 88, 89. And I called and I asked the radio to play Lottie Dottie, <laughs> right? And the dude who answered the, answered the phone said, nah, we can't play that. It's got too much cussing in it. Her? Too much cussing? You can bleep it out. I mean, it's only like, what, two or three curse words, if that? But they weren't having it. And this was during the day. This wasn't at night. So, yeah, hip hop and rap wasn't getting no love from black radio. Black radio was literally backpedaling away from, you know, playing hip hop during primetime hours. Like I said, you could get you could get some love at night, late at night, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. But I mean, who's up then? You know, Um, and on the weekends. But never during the day, never. You would never in the early 90s at most radio stations, black radio stations in most major cities, you would never hear a hip hop artist, um, you know, on the air. Unless it was something that was kind of non-threatening, like uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Yeah, something like parents don't understand. Yeah, that get airplay. But, you know, (laughs) You weren't going to hear straight out of Compton. <laughs> you weren't going to hear uh, Slick Rick. Nah, you just weren't. Even even a song like the like Children's Story, you weren't. You couldn't hear Children's Story at two o'clock in the afternoon on your local radio, black radio station. It just wasn't happening. And it even got to the point where, in the early nineties, when they started to infu- infuse uh, R and B songs with rappers. Uh, they had a rap version that they would play at night. And then they had the regular version that they would play during the day without the rapping in it. You know, they just, they, they didn't want to hear it. And so, you know, black radio, you know, almost (laughs) black radio almost cut us off y'all for real. But that was another thing that almost killed hip hop in the nineties. Black radio just simply not playing rap. Uh, another thing that almost killed hip hop in the 90s. Um, 
the record labels were looking to have artists quote unquote soften their music um and the reason being is because there was something bubbling out west gangster rap right and so easy e nwa ice t um just to name a few they were setting the west coast on fire right and for a kid like me growing up in South Carolina, once I got my hands on that music, it was a wrap. I was hooked, just like everybody in my neighborhood, because we had heard nothing about and we heard nothing like that before in our life. And we didn't know anything about gangs or anything else like that. And so subsequently, you know, record labels and uh, artists as well as you know I guess A&R's they were coming back to the artists saying hey look we can't play NW, NWA is not going to get any airplay so we already understood that but if you want to you know get on the radio you're going to have to take a softer approach you can't be too hard and you know for a lot of artists that was that meant that they had to kind of you know water down a little bit and to be honest, there were quite a few artists who just got to the point where they were just like, look, I'm not going to compromise uh, what I have and the music that I have to just to get airplay. And then you had, you know, some artists who could afford to bend a little and they would, you know, specifically make radio tracks. Case in point, LL. I mean, when L- and LL had been doing it for years, even getting before we even came into the 90s. And so he gets to, you know, the 90s. And I think his first album of the 90s was Mama Said Knock You Out. And while Mama Said Knock You Out, the title track was so hard. What's the tr- one track from that album that everybody remembers? Around the Way Girl. <laughs> so he gave radio Around the Way Girl. And it was a dope ass song and it had a dope ass video. But that's what I mean. Like, so wherein, and there's no knock on LL. I mean, big ups to him. He's one of the all time greats. But that's what you had to do to get on radio. Now, Mama Said Knock You Out was the title track and that got on the radio. But most of his album, you couldn't play on the radio. But he did give radio a softer song. That way he could, you know, kind of extend himself uh, to the masses. And to be honest, that's what you had to do, because if you just had 12 hard ass, tra- <laughs> hard ass tracks, you wouldn't get no love on radio. You just weren't. And so that was another thing that almost killed hip hop, the pressure on artists to, quote unquote, soften their music. Another thing that almost killed hip hop, particularly in the early 90s, was that clubs started shutting out performers like you couldn't go to clubs and just perform Um, legendary clubs like Union Square and the Great Latin Quarter, which if you talk to any old school hip hop head, they've got a Latin Quarter story. I would love the Latin Quarter sounds like a place like you would want to go. But you could almost die just by going there. 
<laughs> but people who wanted to go every week and they went every week and the place was packed and you could get your chain snatched or you could have the time of your life or you could get beat up. I mean, all of that could happen in like one night and you would love it. And this was in New York City. Um, but yeah, coming into the 90s, you know, we're on the back end of the crack epidemic and, you know, the murder rate was extremely high in New York City. And like I said, clubs like the Latin Quarter, Union Square, those clubs are shut down. So club owners got to a point, not just in New York City, but all over where even in the clubs, they didn't want hip hop played like that. They just didn't. I mean, you couldn't just walk into a club and say, hey, you know, tell the DJ like, hey, put on AZ. Uh, you just couldn't. And more often than not, not only could, you know, did they not want the music played, but they got away from having rappers come to the, you know, to the venues to actually rap in the clubs, which was something that really where hip hop started was in the clubs and the parties. So think about it like that. If a rapper can't go to a local club and perform, he damn sure can't go on tour because back then you had like the Budweiser Superfest. I mean, just picture trying to put Slick Rick <laughs> and Dana Dane on tour with Frankie Beverly and Mays and the Commodores. <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? So, you know, the clubs is where rappers could go and perform. But at that particular time, no, it, it was just too much. And, you know, the stop the violence movement was happening, too, because there was a lot of violence in, in clubs and stuff like that. And, you know, promoters just didn't want to book. They didn't want to book rappers. They just didn't. And so that almost single handedly almost killed hip hop in the 90s, because if you can't go on tour and you can't go to the club to perform, how is an artist supposed to make money? record sales yeah good luck with that so yeah that that almost killed hip-hop in the 90s as well um one of the biggest things and these are no particular order one of the biggest things that almost killed hip-hop in the 90s parental advisory stickers yeah man those were the the parental advisory sticker and i, I remember this like it was yesterday um, and this was all brought to the forefront because of two live crew, man. First and foremost, shout out to uncle Luke and the two live crew who never get there just doing hip hop. I love two live crew. I love uncle Luke. Um, they were trailblazers. Now I will be the first to admit you won't confuse <laughs> anything that Luke said with Anything that came out of Run's mouth or Rakim's mouth or anything like that. They weren't lyrical, uh, you know, lyrical MCs, if you will, with the two live crew. Um, as nasty as they want to be is probably one of the most vulgar and foul albums you'll ever want to hear. And I love it. <laughs> and everybody I know who had it loved it. And it had one of the dopest album covers ever. And yeah, it was sexist. It was misogynistic. But in the 90s, we we kind of wow. So we we loved it. Nonetheless, what happened was the uh, attorney general in the state of Florida said that, you know, the group was obscene and they were li literally trying to take uh, 
them to jail for pushing uh, music that had obscene lyrics and everything like that. And Luke's defense was, hey, this is freedom of speech. We can say what we want to say. And prior to that case, there had never been a situation where there was a sticker on an album saying, hey, if you have to be a certain age to purchase this is no different from, you know, a kid, 11 year old kid trying to go into an R rated movie. You know, the sticker says, hey, 18 or older or accompanied by an adult. Um, That's what happened in hip hop. You know, ultimately, Luke won the case and his music was not deemed uh, both he and two live crews music was not deemed as obscene. But the fallout from that was that major record labels all required that if you had explicit content, you would have a little sticker in the bottom right hand corner of your album, bottom right or left hand corner. And it would say parental advisory, explicit content. And to be honest, record labels were fearful that this sticker would prevent people from buying their albums because at the time hip hop is being marketed to kids. So, you know, what happens when you tell it, when you have a sticker on an album saying kid, Hey, this kid can't buy this if they're not 18 and record companies, excuse me, record stores were looking at, you know, possibly going to jail if they sold it to minors, but guess what? They sold it anyway. We go, me and my boys, we go in record store <laughs> we buy all kind of albums and tapes with parental advisory stickers on it. And we didn't, we weren't 18. I, I, I don't really know of many places that actually enforce that law or rule, if you will. But because um, our money was green, so they didn't care one way or the other. But um, yeah, it, it was a major win for, uh, you know, Luke and two live crew and what that enabled them to do was basically cuss on a record and so you have for all of the cussing that you hear and the rap that you listen to you basically have luke and two live crew to thank because because had it not been for them there'd probably be no cussing on the records but that sticker almost killed hip-hop in the 90s um another thing that almost killed hip-hop in the particularly in the early 90s was uh, some of the golden age artists were marginalized. Um, they, what happened was as we moved from the late eighties into the early nineties, you know, you had some of these artists and I'll use an artist like De La Soul, for example. Um, they were doing all that they could to survive and thrive. And what happened was, was that as we moved into like 92, 93, 94, oh man, it started to be a shift. So what happens is, is that, you know, artists like De La Soul, um, maybe a public enemy, if you will. I don't want to, I hate using the word conscious, <laughs> but for the sake of this discussion, let's say conscious rappers, uh, their music was kind of marginalized and they started getting pushed to the side as hip hop became a little edgier. Uh, there was a little 
there was a little storm brewing out west in a record label called Death Road. It was a storm brewing in the east at this record label from Uptown called Bad Boy. Um, so the, some of the golden age artists, you know, they had made great work, but hip hop was getting a little more edgier, was getting a little bit more sharper. And if those artists didn't necessarily have that edge or that sharpness, you know, they kind of got pushed to the side. Hip hop was getting a little tougher. It was getting a little grimier. Um, hip hop and rap late eighties, early nineties was really happy. <laughs> you what you did you'd be hard pressed to look at a video and see somebody with a scowl on their face. Everybody was happy. Everybody was having a good time. It was it was fun. And it got a little, you know, started getting a little grimy, 92, 93, 94. And I'm not blaming, you know, Bad Boy or uh, Death Row for any of this. I'm just saying it just, things started to change, excuse me, things started to change. And there was a shift. And, you know, the radio stations who had, you know, kind of, shunned hip-hop to some degree and i could think of two stations in particular um power 106 in la and uh what's the station hot 97 in new york um they started playing more hip-hop they started playing more hip-hop and the more that they played the little edgier and more grimier it was and you know to be honest there really wasn't a lot of space at that particular time for, you know, some of the golden age artists like P.E. or De La Soul because hip hop was getting an edge and it was getting a little aggressive and those artists just didn't fit the bill. Um, and another thing that almost killed hip hop in the 90s uh, and it still affects hip hop to this day. Honestly, um, sampling artists, the sampling aspect actually landed hip hop in court. Um, one one uh, lawsuit in particular was a lawsuit between Grand Upright. And this was made against Biz Marquee and his uh, record label or his distributor, Warner Brothers. Uh, Biz Marquee had a song that he was putting on his uh, what is it called? Alone, all alone. That was the name of the song uh, on his uh, "I Need a Haircut" album. And basically, in a nutshell, Biz—I don't want to say Biz—but Warner Brothers didn't clear the sample with the guy who actually owned the rights to the record. And to be honest, this was something that happened in hip hop a lot. Uh, the songwriter was uh, his name was Garrett, excuse me, Gilbert O'Sullivan. And, you know, he basically said, like, look, you can't use my song without my permission. And I think as the story goes, Biz had actually or his record label had actually reached out to Gilbert o Gilbert O'Sullivan, excuse me. And um, they were initially denied the opportunity to use the music and Warner Brothers and Biz put it out anyway. And for the first time, there was a lawsuit involving sampling. And it went before a judge and the judge basically ruled that, you know, they infringed on the copyrights 
of this man and you know they had to pay the money for it they had to pay for that sample and um and we saw it later play out with uh de la soul and uh tommy boy uh the group they because they sampled uh the turtles the group the turtles uh they had so many samples from the turtles on that uh three feet high and rising album and you know that for whatever reason tommy boy just didn't clear the samples or he, i don't even know if tommy boy even attempted to clear the samples and you know, De La Soul has maintained that they've made no money from that album. And that album, multi-platinum album. You know, so those things were major. And this was the first time in hip hop where they faced lawsuits as far as uh, sampling was concerned. And it was groundbreaking because basically, you know, you couldn't, you could take a piece of a song and sample it. But you couldn't take the whole song and just reuse it again. And even taking pieces of a song that had to be, you know, cleared. And if it wasn't cleared, then, you know, if they wanted to come after you, they could. And it's something that's been a stickling point in hip hop, you know, for the last 20, 25 years now. Um, And it's not going anywhere, actually, be honest. Almost 30 years since that happened. So, um. Yeah, sampling and 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 Biz Marquis, that kind of that kind of set it up, man. That that was one thing that almost killed hip hop in the '90s. Because if you look at some of the uh, listen to some of the the earlier hip hop, particularly even some of the things in the '80s, you hear a lot of songs that are sampled. You hear some songs that are just straight <laughs> straight up jacked. But you know, if the artist who initially made the song never comes after the rapper, then you know they don't know. But, um, you know, they they've got it to now to the point where it has to be equitable. I mean, basically, you got to get clearance before you can do anything, because if not, uh, you're running the risk of, you know, ended up in court. And the last thing that almost killed hip hop in the 90s, and it was a it was a huge shift and we saw it and we felt it. Um, the role of the woman in hip hop changed. Um. And that almost killed hip hop. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at the history of hip hop, women have always been in hip hop, always. And they've always played a prevalent role in hip hop, um, not just from your female MCs but, or your female DJs, but just, you know, even going way back. They've always played a role. Women, obviously, if for nothing else, came to the parties back in the day. And that's how it, you know, where guys would flock to the parties because you ain't going to the parties just for no dudes just standing around. But women in hip hop really changed the game. And I remember just being, uh, you know, in the in the early in the mid 80s. I mean, you had the female groups and everything like that. Obviously, some of that come to mind, Salt and Pepper. Uh, then you had the great Queen Latifah, MC Light, Moni Love, Nikki D, uh, Heather B. The list goes on and on all the way up until now. Uh, but there was a shift. There was a huge shift from the 80s into the 90s. And there was a there, there was a period where we just really didn't hear a, hear a lot from women. Um. And then, of course, in the mid 90s, you got, you know, Bahamadia and, of course, Lil' Kim, Foxy Brown. And then, of course, the great L Boogie, Lauren Hill. But 
the role of the woman as far as the MC was diminished. And, you know, to be honest, it kind of fell off. And I think, you know, with all of the uh, men in hip hop, you would think that we wouldn't have allowed that to happen, but we did. And, um, you know, it's kind of different because women, if you look at the women in hip hop in the 80s, you know, they were necessary. They, they were, you know, a lot of a lot of times judged, mostly judged on their ability to rap. We weren't really tripping off how they look. I mean, don't get me wrong. Salt and Pepper was cute. I thought both of them looked good back in the day and Spinderella. But I wanted to hear them rhyme. And that's why I bought their albums. I wanted to hear them rhyme. I did, you know, the fact they were cute helps, I guess. But, you know, and then when you move to- closer toward the, the 90s, you know, it was about how sexy they were. What, you know, Foxy and Kim, you know, weren't weren't afraid to rap about, you know, their sexuality and, you know, what they would do to men and things of that nature and about their bodies. And, you know, that was a shift, to be honest, that in hip hop, I don't think we've really fully recovered from. And, and you know, it's a little unfortunate because we don't have as many female MCs as we used to. And that's unfortunate. Um, there's still quite a few. And for some reason, I don't know why, even to this day, where people feel like there can only be one female MC. You either got to like Nikki or you got to like Cardi. Neither one of them can rap better than Rhapsody. But, you know, that's another story for another day. Nonetheless, uh, women's roles changing and the disappearing of the female MC almost killed hip hop in the 90s. So, yeah, th- those are just a few things that actually almost killed hip hop in the 90s. Luckily, we were able to survive. Um, we went through a lot. We saw a lot. And the 90s indeed was a great era. But like I like I kind of outlined on this podcast, you know, there were some things, some subtle, some not so subtle that actually almost killed hip hop in the 90s. Fortunately for us, we were able to see it through. That's going to do it for me. Thank you for checking out the latest edition of the 12 Kyle podcast. I'm your boy, 12 Kyle. We'll catch you guys next time. 5,000.